God, we want to shout your name with our lives. We want to say that you are Yahweh, Lord of all. There is no one like you in heaven and on earth. And it is your kingdom that lasts forever and ever and ever, and you never, ever change. God, we love you and we need you. You are God, you are Lord, you are Yahweh. We love you, God, and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that we can be your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name. Morning. How many of you guys uh, remember Project SIA? Anybody? Bob, what, what did that stand for? Project Stand and All. This is a message that I spoke on probably over a year ago. But did anybody see that moon last night? That is a true example of Project SIA. I wanted to remind you just to daily take time to see God's creation, what God's doing in daily life, and have that Project SIA living out, because that's where we, we give God the glory when we see things like that moon last night, when I was completely distracted by my kids and a lot of other things going on. Uh, I saw the moon, it was amazing. Uh, I just wanted to bring that up, and just to see if anybody remembers what I talk about, ever, because my wife doesn't, so... Also, I want to give you guys an update on something else I talked about. Uh, back in the fall, I talked out of James chapter 1, uh, and the verse was, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look at, after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I want to bring that up because I want to update you. At that time, I talked about my sister. This was probably, it was the fall. She was getting ready to go in January uh, to live in Haiti. She's going to live in an orphanage, be one of the primary caretakers of about 70 to 90 orphans there in Haiti. Uh, it's just a poor little town. Uh, and I want to give you an update on what's going on with her. Uh, it's been a crazy time for her. There's been so many things that have happened from a, a minor uh, riot where a guy told her to run to her room. She was out at the marketplace, run to your room, lock the door, because uh, she was an American woman. Those are the kind of things that she's been facing. That first weekend she was there, they had 60, 70 kids, and out of nowhere, they drop in 21 more orphans from another orphanage on them. And so just things like that have gone on. But what I wanted to, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to ask for prayer for her. She's out there alone, and not too many people there out there to encourage her. So if you guys could pray for her in that ministry out there, because she's truly living out what we talked about there things that we all could be doing right here uh, in America, in our daily lives. It's not just looking after orphans or widows, but the people around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family. But she has a blog, and I'd encourage you guys to check out this blog. She's a pretty good writer, and she updates you know, every couple of weeks on the, the goings-on of a, a single female trying to take care of all these orphans in Haiti. But I read this in March... And I want to share this with you. This is from March 21st. Bonwit is the title. And for those who speak French, I may be butchering that. Uh, but Bonwit is what she calls this. So one of my favorite times with the kids starts every night around 8 p.m. When I go say Bonwit. I'm also going to warn you guys. I'm really emotional for some reason right now. I know you guys think that's all the time. It's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm tired. I think that's what it is. But Bonwit, Good night. Uh, last year when I was here with the team, we started meeting with the girls every night before bed to sing, pray, 
and kiss them goodnight. It was a very special time. When I returned this year with the team, of the kids, of course, wanted to have that time together again. They'd have remembered it. It didn't take long before the boys were asking me why I sing and pray with the girls, but I just say bonwit to them. Now that I live here, I start with the little kids' room and end with the big girls' room, and I get to sing, pray, and kiss each little precious face goodnight. For a while, some of the 11, and, uh, 11 to 14-year-old boys thought they were too cool for a kiss on the cheek and a hug goodnight. But now they, will at, they all ask me why I spend more time in the girls' room and make sure I sing with them every night. Tonight, three of the boys blessed my heart, and they didn't even know it. When I went to say goodnight to the boys, three of them, uh, to the, to the boys, three of them hadn't made it to the room yet. I returned a little later to ask one of the older boys to help me with something, and my almost 14-year-old Nestle said with his head hanging and a sad voice, Emily, you didn't say goodnight to me. I said, I'm so sorry, and I kissed him on the cheek, and I told him I love him. Then the other two boys, of course, needed their goodnight, too. They were so cute and made me feel so good to know that they do accept and appreciate my love for them. I think our, our bone wit time has become as special to them, at least some of them, as it is to me. If I didn't get to say, if I don't get to say goodnight to some of the little ones because they are already asleep when I come to the room, they always ask the first thing the next day, why didn't you come pray with me and say goodnight? I get yelled at if I try to leave before they get a chance to give me a hug or kiss from them. They're too cute. My prayer is that they would experience God's love through me. I know that sounds crazy because God's love is perfect and I'm a sinner, but praise him because he has saved me from my sins and because he uses us with all our imperfections. So I am praying he will, he will use me here with these precious children who love to be held, hugged, kissed, told I love you and kissed, born with. No matter how old or young they are, ball and win. <laughs> Praise the Lord for my sister and her ministry there and her encouraging words to us. I'm telling you, that doesn't have to happen just in Haiti, in an orphanage. That can happen everywhere. Uh, that's with our kids. That's with our family. That's with our friends. It's just God's love being shared with others. I'm telling you, go check out the blog. Probably do it, you know, when you're going to have some other encouraging, uplifting things going on later because you might be tearing up a little bit. But that's, that's God lived out in the lives of others. I just wanted to update you on that because it encouraged my heart and I want to bring up what we had talked about in the past because that's the opportunity we have. Now I think I can recover here. Uh, I also want to say pray for my other sister, the si not my other, I have six. Uh, <laughs> the sister right after me, Andrea. She's 29-year-old. Beautiful, beautiful girl, loves the Lord, not found the, the guy who uh, could take her as his own. Um, but she loves kids, and God's made her so she could be a great mom. Well, she gets to start foster care with a three-year-old in the next two weeks. So another example of somebody taking that on. So pray for those sisters of mine, and use that as an example of things that we can do in our daily life um, as we're trying to, to live in ministry uh, to God. So now we're going to continue on in our series in Daniel. Chapter 2, Alan did a great job actually listening to it. I wasn't here last Sunday. I was in Oklahoma visiting my brother. Um, but Alan did a great job. I listened to his message twice on the podcast. And he set this, uh, this series up well. Four, or four, four weeks that we're doing this series. And the chapter I came to, chapter 2, a lot of verses, a lot going on. 
49 verses, uh, I, I narrowed it down to a one-page outline because there's so much here, uh, but I want to get the story told. That's the thing here. The power is in the story. We all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the, the, fi the, the fiery furnace, and we know Daniel and the lions and those stories, but this story is so powerful, and we don't want to miss it. And so I'm going to try not to stray too far away because I've got to stick to my outline if we want to get through this in a good amount of time. So if I start getting too far over here, Raleigh can start shooing me back or Jeff on the other side because I've got to stick right here. I've got to follow this outline. How many of you guys have had a dream or a nightmare that, is, that kept you out for hours afterwards? Show of hands. How many of you guys have had that dream or nightmare that afterwards... For a few hours, you're up just because you couldn't rest your mind. You couldn't sleep. I can tell you, in irony, uh, and maybe God was trying to give me an example. That happened to my wife last night. She had a nightmare. Well, first of all, I go to bed, and within five minutes, she's asleep. And I always hate that because I want to get sleep, and then she's asleep and snoring a little bit. And... But all of a sudden, she starts laughing. She starts laughing hysterically. I said, what are you laughing? She doesn't answer me. All right. Try to go back to sleep. A minute later, she's laughing harder. I said, I shook her. What are you laughing at? Oh, I'm dreaming. Oh, you're dreaming, and you're keeping me awake laughing. I said, but at least you gave me something to talk about tomorrow. Uh, and then she started laughing again. I said, are you dreaming this time? No, I was laughing at you. But a little later, she had a nightmare that kept her up, seriously, for an hour or two. My son, Colin, uh, at 2, 3... Four years old, every night he asked me to pray that he didn't have any dreams. Because the dreams he had, he said, would keep him up during the night. And that bothered him. And so every night, as long as I can remember, a part of our prayer is pray that Colin doesn't have any dreams. Not good, not bad, any dreams. And then I'd leave, and like clockwork, I could sit on the stairs and listen. After I leave, then he prayed, God. Help me not to have any dreams. I don't know if he didn't trust my prayer. Uh, but that, those dreams troubled him to that point. Well, we're dealing with a story here of a king that is restless, that is troubled because of a dream that he's having or a series of dreams, whatever it may be. But it's troubling his spirit to the point where he's losing sleep over this. And this story starts with that. Now, again, I'm going to try to stick with this outline. There is so much in here. I don't want to miss it. And this could have been a Bible study that somebody could do just on this chapter. In fact, guys like Tom and Jimmy could probably uh, take this one even deeper. If you guys want to go have a conversation with them afterwards, there's a lot there uh, that guys with good knowledge of this chapter would be able to, to expound upon. I just want to get this story told. Maybe I should stop talking about the fact that I want to get the story told and actually tell the story. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, this is Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And just to point out that every kingdom had all these wise people that were able to look into the stars or whatever, and magicians that could summon these things, uh, and supposed to be the wisest people in all the kingdoms. Uh, to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came and they stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and I will interpret it. 
The king replied to the astrologers, astrologers, this is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turned into piles of rubble. And actually, this is the NIV. The New King James actually says, uh, the thing is gone from me. The dream is gone from me. It doesn't say it in here, but he's basically saying, I don't remember exactly what the dream was, so you're so smart. You're the astrologers. You're the magicians. You're the summoners. Tell me what my dream is and then interpret it for me. So he's not remembering this, and that's why he's getting a little severe on them, uh, saying, I'm going to cut you into pieces here if you don't, you don't regurgitate what I'm trying to, to remember. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from, the, from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among men. So right here we have a king, can't sleep, bothered by the dreams, brings the smartest magicians, astrologers, summers into his presence and says, I've got to have somebody of all these people that can tell me what's going on in my dreams. And then, then obviously they can't. And so they're trying to buy themselves time and they keep bringing up, tell us the dream. Well, if they tell them the dream, they could probably make up a story about it that makes it sound like they're actually interpreting his dream. So they keep asking, I don't remember the dream, is what Nebuchadnezzar saying. And so as this builds up and builds up, as a king can do, because he's the king, he gets ticked off and he says, I'm going to have you cut into pieces and destroyed because you guys can't help me. Extreme, yes, but that's how things rolled back in the day. If he gets upset, he has the power to destroy the wisest men in his kingdom because they cannot help him. And I also found it interesting, and this is just a side note, uh, but when they say the king, what the king asks is too difficult, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Right there, they're admitting that their gods are not gods that are among men. And that they're the only ones that can do it, but they're not around them. I mean, we have a god that sent his son to earth that was among men. Their gods, not even among men. Just a side note there. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him. Let's stop right there before I get to that point. What's interesting is, in chapter 1, verse 20, when, when Alan was talking last week, it actually says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding, uh, or 19, let's start with 19. The king talked with him, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. But yet, when he summoned the most wise men of his kingdom, he did not summon Daniel. Yet, 
when it's time to go find all the wise men of the kingdom, Daniel and the other three, and which are we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're lumped into that group. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed. They had no opportunity to try to interpret, yet they're lumped in with the rest of them. And so Daniel, when, the Arioch, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, this is verse 14 for those following along, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's... I also found this funny. Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact. This is a huge point to make. This is something also that we can take away in our lives. But when I read that Daniel spoke with wisdom and tact, I am ready for some words that are going to blow me away. Like, what is he going to say to the king here that changes his mind? What's this wisdom and tact that he has to say? And I was a a little underwhelmed when I read the next verse here, or the next line. Uh, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer... Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? That was the wisdom attack. Those were the words he asked. In fact, it almost would sound like he's questioning the king for being too hasty. But what I thought of immediately is not just the words he spoke, but how he spoke them. Maybe the confidence in which he spoke. I thought of the verse in Proverbs 15.1 that said, A gentle word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So I believe that when Daniel's being faced with death, he just responds in confidence. He doesn't get worked up. And I can tell you, my wife wants me to ascribe to that message to when I'm talking with her to talk in a confident and soft voice and not an angry voice. Because if Daniel came in there and said, hey, we didn't even get a shot to try to interpret this thing, and you're coming to us telling us we're going to be killed, what are you trying to do to us? That probably was not going to be the response that got him time to allow him to show God's glory. And so he responded with wisdom and tact and probably confidence and a soft voice and says, uh, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went straight to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And then Nebuchadnezzar gave him time to interpret the dream. So then immediately, immediately, Daniel returned to the house and explained the matter of his friends, uh, friend, uh, matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. There are a couple really cool things here. Immediately, he went to the guys he was closest to and said, hey, We have got to come before our God in prayer and plead for mercy. I mean, what a testimony to the church here, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to small groups, to people that come together. When we are in controversy, when we are uh, up against things that we don't think we can handle, where should we be able to go? To those who we know love us the most and that are going to get down on their knees with us and cry out to God for mercy. What a testimony as he goes to these guys. And obviously they're lumped in because their death is imminent as well. But those were the guys that understood crying out to God to mercy and doing it together at this group of believers. If the church could follow that testimony, there'd be so, it'd be so powerful. And I know we do that to an extent. You know, our small group will get together. 
and we'll pray for somebody hurting, and we'll pray for each other as we're going through these different things. But he says, plead for mercy. Plead to God, and that's the second part of this. You know, God, God acknowledges us. God loves when we are able to humble ourselves before him and show our weakness and cry out to him for mercy. I don't know if that's something I know how to do very well. There's been a time of my life where we were going, my wife and I were going through lots of controversy in our marriage. And that was the time I remember the most where I would be on my knees and I'd be crying out to God for mercy in urgency. And I was humbling myself before God, but, but that's not something that I've done consistently. And that's not something the church does consistently. God wants us daily to be crying out to him not just for mercy, but for, for help, for, for guidance in what we do with our daily life. And that's a, that's a challenge that I wanted to give you guys, is that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come before God, and they humble themselves in mercy, crying out for God to help them. And that's something we should be doing every day of our lives. So, if I can find where I was... All right, verse 17, And Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So they plead for mercy from God. And immediately God answers the prayer. Daniel gets this uh, interpretation. That brought up a question to my mind. Tim, what do you do when you actually see answered prayer? How do you respond? Is it like Daniel where he immediately, you know, he could have gotten that and knowing that death is imminent and just ran straight to the king. I've got the interpretation. What did he do? What did he do? Somebody shouted out. He stopped and praised God. I was trying to think in my life, when I've seen prayer answered, I've seen it. I think probably every single one of us in there, in one way or another, have seen prayer answered. What do we actually do? Do we take that for granted? Okay, now he finally got me one. Finally answered my prayer here. All right, now I'm going to move on. Or do we realize the power of answered prayer and realize that only came from God, and i got to stop and give him all the glory? I thought back to when I worked at Camp Elam. And not just Camp Elam, other camps. For those who have been a part of camps where we have kids coming in, the very beginning of the week we start praying as counselors and staff that kids' lives would be saved, would be changed. I mean, we pray that every morning. And as the week progresses, the morning prayer meetings we'd have, we'd have a counselor say, last night two two children came to know the Lord for the first time. And I was always so shocked because all we would do is like, hmm, praises, you know, just a quick, yeah, amen. And then we just, yeah, thank you, Lord, that two more. I mean, two lost souls came before God. We'd been praying for that all week, and all we do, yes, amen. You know, Daniel just cried out to God, praise the Lord. I want to give him glory. And that always struck me, and I was a part of it. I'm lumped in with that. What do we do when God answers prayer? What do we do when God brings people into our church and we see lives change? Do we cry out together, praise God? Are we up here singing these songs with passion? Because 
We are praising a God that is answering our prayers, that is looking after us daily, always, always looking after us, our families. Are we stopping and praising Him? Are we responding to that answered prayer? That is a big slap in my face. How do we respond to answered prayer in our lives? Because we saw that progression. Cried out for mercy. How do we respond to that answered prayer? This is what Daniel said. Praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He... He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. It's really cool. Um, You know, there's a lot of religions out there, or a lot of denominations even, that believe in God. But their prayers... A lot of them, their prayers aren't that personal. You see how personal Daniel's praise to God is. I mean, he's speaking of exactly what's going on. You gave me wisdom. Even though I'm considered wise on earth, you gave me wisdom. It's a personal prayer. Thanking God for that personal situation right there. Again, what a beautiful example. And and I hope this motivates us when Nick's back up there and we're singing. And we're coming before the, the bread and the cup. And we realize that that was an answered prayer, that our life was changed, and that we have salvation, that we can go before the God and sing these praises, and it's personal between me and my God, me and our God. And that's cool where Daniel just turned that around and gave God the glory and the praise. So now we come into this section where, where Daniel actually replays the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and then he interprets it. And, and I want to emphasize that the message alone could have been on this, but even this interpretation of the dream, this replaying of the dream, like I said, this is, this is really a study that you could do. Uh, there's a lot here, a lot that I can't get into because for sake of time and for depth, we wouldn't have enough time to go over it and explain it. So I want to highlight what he's talking about and give God the glory in, in what he's bringing up here. But again, if this is something you want to get more in depth with, and we have other guys in this church too that have great depth and have studied this passage as well. This is verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute wise men of, uh, the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dreams for him. Arach took Daniel to the king at once, and he said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who came to tell the king what his, dreams, what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also uh, called Belteshazzar, and you, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he had asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come? Your dream, uh, your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And what's cool here is Daniel could have taken all the credit. I mean, none of these other guys could interpret this. None of these other guys could recall what the dream was. Daniel right there has it. 
And what does he do? He gives God the glory. That's so cool. I mean, Daniel could take all the glory himself. I mean, he doesn't have to tell him. The only one that's going to know is God. And he gives God the glory. You know, my dad told me early in my life, you have somebody tell you you're good at something or praise you for doing something, turn it right back to God. Give him the glory because the only reason you're able to do those things is because God gave it to you. God made you that way. Daniel puts that into practice right there. He turns it right back and he gives God the glory. As you were lying, this is verse 29, as you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy of what's actually going to happen. So Daniel's just pointing it out that what you were seeing in your dream is actually truly a a prophecy from God. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than others or than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. And here's the dream. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept, through, swept, swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. And we'll continue with the interpretation. You, O king, are the king of kings, the God of heaven. Uh, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. So basically, King Nebuchadnezzar has been appointed by God as the king of Babylon. And that's basically what Daniel's pointing out there. Uh, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God, God of heaven has given you do, uh, dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all of them. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as I saw you, uh, just as you saw that the feet and toes were part, partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet will have some of the strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Some of you might, might be saying, what in the world is he talking about? So we'll, we'll go back to this first part of what he's interpreting here. Um, there will be, uh, he says, he has made you ruler of, over all of them. This is in verse 38. You are the head of gold. The head of gold, he's the king of Babylon. That gold represents Babylon. After you, another kingdom will, re, re, will rise inferior to yours. 
Uh, and that was the chest and arms of silver that he was talking about in the dream. And that chest of the arms of silver were the Medes and the Persians. And after that, uh, he says there's a third kingdom, one of bronze. And again, that was the bellies and thighs of bronze. And that was Greece, the kingdom of Greece. And then finally, he says there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And that's Rome. So he's prophesying that there's Babylon, and then another kingdom with the, the, the Medes and Persians will come, and then another kingdom with the Greeks will take over, and then finally a stronger kingdom, Rome, will crush all the others and take over. So he's setting this up as this kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. The gold, the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs and iron. It's all these kingdoms that have been in place. And it sets us up for what he's going to say next. Uh, this is in verse 43. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven, heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So God's talking about all of these kingdoms. And one after another, they rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. And then what he brings out is there is a kingdom that cannot rise then fall. There is a kingdom that cannot be crushed. There is a, a kingdom that no man can take from. There is a kingdom that is eternal. And God sets this up to show that all these people, all these kings, all these nations, they put all this time and energy into these kingdoms that just come and go, but there is an eternal kingdom. God's kingdom is everlasting. All these folks put their time and energy and all they have into something that's just going to rise and fall. And how cool is it that we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be crushed? when every single kingdom ever will be crushed. None of them can last except for our kingdom. And God is pointing that out. We've got an eternal kingdom. That's what Alan was talking about last week. That's our whole theme, is this different kingdom, the true kingdom, God's kingdom that we are a part of. And so, even today, men and women spend their whole lives trying to create and, and, and maintain their own kingdom, so to speak. They put all their, their time and energy and their riches into these things. And we have come to have the true kingdom, the eternal kingdom, and yet we do not put all our time and energy into a kingdom that does not go away. And that's, that's a big shout-out to us and what we've been wanting to do and what we've been talking about with Nick and Alan and what Kyle will continue to talk about with the next two messages 
is that we have the true kingdom. We don't have to worry about what's going away because it's not. And that we can put our time and our energy, everything we have into that. We can live for something that God is giving us an inheritance to. I want to challenge you guys because what happened after that, and I'm not going to steal the glory for, or steal uh, Kyle's thunder as he gets into the rest of the, the chapters here. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, he was so relieved that somebody was able to tell him his dream and interpret that for him. That's what he concentrated on. And he made Daniel, you know, he put him in a place of high importance after that because he was the one that was able to interpret it. And God was just using that as an opportunity for Daniel to be in a place where people would see him because Daniel's getting ready to, to make an even a further example for God's kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, all he caught was, hey, you answered my dream, now I can sleep at night. He didn't really get what the prophecy was, what that was symbolizing, the true power of God. Now he throws out, you know, Daniel, I'm putting you in this place because your God is the only God that can do this. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar didn't really recognize that in his own life, as you will see in what comes. And that's, you know, that's, do we really recognize God's kingdom? I mean, God throws it out in front of us all the time. We could see it daily in many different ways. And do we truly recognize it? Do we truly recognize that in our own lives? Or do we put our time and energy in an earthly kingdom? And I put an awful lot of time of my own into an earthly kingdom. And I fail to recognize a lot of the time the true kingdom, God's kingdom. And that's what we want to live for. That's what we're trying to praise God for. And so now we have an opportunity to come before God, thank him at the cross, and look at that bread and that juice and realize what it truly symbolizes and that we're able as brothers and sisters of Christ and as God's children to be able to take that cup and that bread and praise him that we are a part of the true kingdom, the only kingdom, the kingdom that cannot be crushed, that cannot be destroyed, that will live eternally. That is awesome. And that's what we want to bring out in this story. And so as we come before God and we get ready to sing those praises, acknowledge that answered prayer in your life that you're now a part of the true kingdom, and sing those praises. Make it personal to God. But God answered a prayer in each one of your lives that know him. And now you're his. You're a part of this kingdom, and it can't go away. Father God, just thank you so much for these stories, Lord, that you bring out uh, in what's, what's true, your word. And Lord, I pray that we take these stories and we would we would be able to be impacted by him, Father, and that it wouldn't just be a little part of what's a busy life, Lord, but that we would stop and we acknowledge that you give us these stories, you show us the truth of your word for a reason. And I pray that we would be able to acknowledge that we live for a real king. We, 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 we live for a true kingdom that cannot go away, that is eternal. And Father, as we come before you, we examine ourselves, Lord, and we look at the cross. I just pray that that is what's on our mind. As we leave here, that's what's on our hearts. Lord, we thank you so much for that salvation. We praise you in your name. Amen.